John chapter 2. If you're visiting with us and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we're so glad you're here. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of those pew Bibles in front of you. But we printed the text for you on page 10 of the worship guide. This is God's Word, John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You may be seated. Would you join with me as we pray again and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are um, the great one. You are true, and all that you say is trustworthy and true, and your truth has power to transform, to comfort where comfort is needed, to convict where conviction is needed, to change us. And so we pray that as we come to your word and hear you, our great prophet, preaching to us, transform us. Don't let us leave here unchanged. So, Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is a familiar story. It's Jesus' first miracle, turning wine, water into wine at a wedding. But it's, I think what you'll see today, or my hope is that what we'll see today that is more than just a miracle, but an unveiling of God's agenda to bring joy into a sin-cursed world. That's why Mark earlier read from Amos chapter 9. It's God's agenda laid out of restoration to a sin-cursed world to bring joy, not just the undoing of what was broken by sin at the fall, but to bring joy into the world through the restoration of his kingdom. And so here's Jesus. He's at a hometown wedding in Cana of Galilee. I thought in God's providence, what a great weekend for us as a church to have celebrated one of the, the marriage of one of our own covenant children who grew up here and then to have this text in front of us because here's Jesus present at a hometown wedding in Cana of Galilee. Galilee is the northern section of Israel. The Galileans were the Yankees of Israel, if you will. And Cana is a small town just north, half a day's journey north of 
Jesus' own small town. He grew up as a small town boy in the town of Nazareth. And this is going to play a big role. This theme of Jesus in the small towns is going to play a big role in John's gospel because Jesus is often found hanging out with the small town folk of Israel. He doesn't hang out with the power brokers of Israel. He interacts with them, as we saw last week, as they come out to meet him in another small town on the other side of the Jordan and are introduced by John the Baptist to Jesus. He often hangs out with small town people, the kind of people that no one else would ever pay attention to. In fact, in this miracle, the really the only ones who are who are given a sense of what Jesus had done are the servants. Everyone else just benefits from this miracle, but the ones who really get to see are the ones that nobody else had seen all throughout the wedding celebration, the servants. This is this is who Jesus is. This is who he spends his time with. And so Jesus is invited to this wedding in Canaan of Galilee with his mother and his disciples. They are probably at a wedding of some family friends or some community members, maybe even distant relatives. And understand the context of what's going on here. A wedding celebration during this time in the ancient world was a, at least a week-long feast. It was a grand celebration, a, a week-long party for the whole community, where the whole community would have gathered together in a joyful celebration, a huge party. And at the party, they run out of wine, which is a disaster. Now, just to be clear, this is actual wine. Not grape juice or water, as some have wanted to dismiss Jesus' miracle here. Not much of a miracle turning water into better water. And if you think about this, in the hot weather of the ancient Near East, wherever you store grape juice, it immediately begins to ferment. This is wine at a celebration. Now, they often watered down their wine. It had gotten too strong, and they watered it down to the alcohol content of a glass of beer, but it's still wine. It's wine at a party. In fact, it's implied that by the time Jesus turns the water into wine, the guests have drunk freely, meaning they become a little tipsy on the original wine that had been served, and they run out of wine, which at this grand week-long community-wide celebration is a disaster. And so Jesus' mother approaches them and tells them the problem. They have no wine. She knew who he was. He was God in the flesh. That had been announced prior to his birth by the angel. She had raised him. Certainly by this point, he's 30 most likely, certainly by this point, it was quite clear that this kid was a little different than the rest of them. Even though he done, doesn't do any miracles until this point, as John tells us, she knew who he was. She knew his compassion. She knew his tenderness. She knew he had a heart for the afflicted. She had probably seen it a thousand times. And so she approaches him. There's a problem. A disaster is brewing. There's no wine. But Jesus' answer back to her is really abrupt. Woman, verse 4, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman was a term of endearment. Don't hear that as the harsh part. It's what he says next. What does this have to do with me? It's a common saying. It's an idiom in the ancient world of 
of distancing oneself. It's a way of saying, I'm not here to fulfill your agenda. What does this have to do with me? Your agenda and my agenda are different. I'm not here to do your agenda. Jesus loved his mother. He honored her. In fact, one of his last words from the cross as he lay dying was to provide a new home for his mother with John, the writer of the gospel. But Mary had come to Jesus with an agenda, not just a need. And it's her agenda that he is rejecting, not the need. He actually does something about the need, but he's distancing himself. He's saying to Mary, look, I'm not a genie in a bottle. Now, Aladdin has just come out. And children, you know the storyline. I don't think this is a spoiler. There's a genie in a lamp. And it works like this. You know how it works. You rub the lamp, the genie comes out, and he grants you three wishes. And whoever holds the lamp is the master of the lamp. The master of the genie. And the genie has to do his bidding. And Jesus is distancing himself. So that's not how this works in my kingdom. I'm not a genie for you to do what you want. I'm not come here to, to follow your agenda in this world. I am God in the flesh. He isn't here to fulfill our deepest wishes because he has come to fulfill our deepest needs. And the two are often in conflict with each other. They are seldom the same. What we need and what we ask for are oftentimes very different. And so Jesus is willing to separate himself from some of our greatest wishes because he's going to go after our greatest needs. And we generally don't know what they are. And so this is what we need. We need a Jesus who's going to cross us, who's going to say, what does that have to do with me? He's not a wish grander. He's a savior. He's a king. One commentator puts it this way. The import of the statement, Jesus' distancing of himself from his mother, the import of the statement is to declare that Jesus' service for the kingdom of God is determined solely by his Father in heaven. Into that area, not even his mother can intrude. He's got a bigger agenda. And this miracle is going to set him on a journey towards the cross. An agenda that Mary quite now doesn't quite grasp. We'll see this in a second because John tells us this is the first sign that Jesus does. The first sign, it's sort of a double saying. It's a first sign that he does in Cana of Galilee. He's actually going to do his fourth sign in chapter, at the end of chapter 4 in Cana of Galilee as well. It's going to bracket Cana of Galilee, but it's also his first sign. And that, that language of sign is important. John tells us it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Signs are going to play a huge role in John's gospel. In fact, the first 12 chapters are structured around seven signs that Jesus does. Now, children, think about how signs work. Signs point us to something greater than itself. So if you're going into Disney World, you don't stop at the entrance where the sign says Disney and get out and celebrate. No, you have to go. The point is that's pointing to a greater reality, something beyond itself. 
That's the way the miracles of Jesus function in John's gospel. They are signs pointing to a greater reality. He's both distancing himself from his mother's agenda because he has something better to give, a better agenda to carry out. And that something better is seen in the miracle itself. Because Jesus is doing something more than just turning water into wine. John tells us that there were six stone jars here that held 20 to 30 gallons of water that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. The Jews were pretty elaborate in keeping themselves ceremonially pure because sin dirties us before God. And so if you're going to enter into the temple or into the synagogue and worship God, you had to be clean. Pure, And so they had an elaborate system of keeping themselves pure by washing the outside of themselves and the outside of the utensils that they used to eat with. So they would wash their hands and the utensils before every meal. And that's what these purification jars were used for, filled with water. Probably why they're not filled up to the brim at this point, because they had been used to keep themselves ceremonially pure. And so Jesus tells the servants... Excuse me, fill up those water jars with water to the brim. Then take some to the master of the feast. And then the jars of water, some name in there, are turned into wine. But why wine for Jesus' first sign? He's in complete control. Mary, I'm not going to follow your agenda. I'm following my father's agenda. I am in control of the situation. Why wine for his first sign? And why a wedding feast? Well, both wine and a wedding feast were signs of God's pre- the presence of God's redeeming kingdom. So in our Old Testament reading this morning from Amos chapter 9, again, God promises a time of restoration, a time when broken things will be made whole. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman, the person who's putting fruitful things into the ground, will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, the one who's making wine, him who sows the seed. It's a picture of abundance. The mountains, he goes on, will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people and they shall rebuild. Build the ruined cities inhabited. Again, in Jeremiah 31, this great chapter of promised restoration, a, a promise of a new creation. This is what is said. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young flock and herds. Abundance and wine always makes it into the list of abundant things that God is going to provide when his restoring and redeeming kingdom comes to put everything right that's been broken by sin. And you see what Jesus is saying. Mother, I'm not here to follow your agenda. I am here to follow my father's agenda. And as a result, an even greater benefit will come to the whole of the earth. The kingdom of God will come and the whole of the earth will be renewed. Blessings will flow because God will restore all that has been broken by sin. And that is a cause for celebration. And that's why he does the first sign 
announcing the arrival of the king who's going to restore all that's been broken by sin at a wedding party because it was a great celebration, a time of intimacy and joy. Now, in light of this sort of redemptive history, this look of what God is doing, notice what the remark of the master of the feast says. It's just loaded, just dripping with double meaning. And he says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He doesn't even know what's going on behind the scenes with the water being turned into the wine. The surprise for him is that the best wine has come last, and the logic is clear. This is good stuff. Jesus doesn't serve up cheap stuff. He only gives his best. His way is always gracious and his grace is always extravagant. It's not just a thimble full of wine to a few people at the feast. It's not the cheap stuff that you get at Aldi. This is good stuff. Because that's what God gives through Jesus Christ. His best and lavishly to the end of joy. And here's why this should produce joy for us. Because Jesus is reaching down to the deepest cry of our hearts with this sign. Because on one hand, he's saying, look, the Jewish, I mean, it's important that he's turning the Jewish purification pots into wine. He's like, look, this is a better way. There's a better way of being clean. There's a better way of dealing with your guilt and your shame, the sense of dirtiness that you feel. And so John adds a little commentary. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And when those two things go together, sign and glory, it's very loaded language in John's gospel. This is what he means when he says that this sign revealed Jesus' glory. We may be tempted to think, well, it's obvious what he means. Like, he turned water into a lot of wine at a wedding celebration. The party got better because Jesus was there. And, And that's true, but there's so much more going on with John. As he often does, it's full of double meaning again. Because when sign and glory go together, a sign reveals his glory. We, if we just simply were stopped at the amazement of what Jesus did, we'd miss what he's doing. Because it's deeper. There's a deep layer here. Look what, look what happens when these words are combined in John's gospel. Particularly a sign that reveals glory. In John 12, and you remember the structure of John is the first 12 chapters are a book of signs and the last ones are a narrative around the cross of Jesus. He transitions. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has come to do. And the rest of his gospel at the end of chapter 12 is that transition point. And so in verse 23, this is what he says. Transitioning now to the narrative about his death. The hour has come For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, you remember what Jesus had said to his mother. My hour has not yet come. Now John's saying, 
Now my hour is here. Why? Because he's marching towards the cross. That's what he means by my hour. He's saying to his mom, you don't know what the, you're setting in motion. When I do this sign, it's going to set me on a path. And that path is going to take me straight to the cross. Now listen to what he says. I say to you, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John's gospel, that's what glory means. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The sign, John's saying, is like a little glimpse into the cross. John 13, 31, again it's announced, this now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Why? Because he's marching straight to the cross. In John's gospel, Jesus' glory is seen in his death for our sin as our substitute. Again, one, one commentator puts it this way. Mary's request for activity is thus given in an ironic spin. Inasmuch as Jesus will act on behalf, not simply of the wedding, but the entire world. His death on the cross will provide far more than just wine. Because watch what happens here in this little picture of the cross. In the ancient culture, honor and shame are a currency. Sort of the way it is today, too. Honor and shame are currencies. If you feel, if you have honor, you're elevated. You have power and you're esteemed. You get things done in the world. If you have shame, you're cast off and you want to hide. There's a sense that I'm, I'm not worthy of being loved because I'm not even worthy of attention. So don't even look at me. And in the ancient world, that was on, just on steroids, honor and shame. Everyone's walking around with a social bank account in which either honor was being put in or shame was being put in. So at a wedding feast was a chance to earn extreme honor, throw a lavish feast, and the people would talk about it for years. Then you'd have a little bit more honor to put into your bank account to spend as social currency. Everyone in the community would have been there, and then people from surrounding communities would have been there too. And that's not such a foreign concept to us, is it? I mean, this is in Southern culture, we like to throw big, elaborate weddings. I mean, I always say it doesn't take much to get a couple married, right? You know, come into my office, we can do this. But big weddings are a chance to gain honor in a shame culture. We want people to be talking about it for years. This is why I love the way we pulled off this wedding this weekend as a church community. Just simple and straightforward. Everyone pitching in. It was so beautiful. But the reason we throw big weddings in a southern culture is to get honor for the family. So people will talk about it. It'll be the the talk of the town for years. And in that context, to run out of wine would have been extremely shameful. The groom at his own wedding feast was in terrible danger of bearing unbearable shame for the rest of his life. The groom had failed. He had failed terribly. It was going to be deeply embarrassing. He would have been forever known as that guy who ran out of wine at his own wedding. And then Jesus steps in. And he covers his shame. No one knows of his failure. 
which would have been gracious and kind in and of itself, but there's more because Jesus doesn't just want to stop with protecting him from shame because notice what happens next. The bridegroom ends up being praised for providing such a good gift to his people. Honor is being bestowed on him. It's being heaped on him with praise and celebration. Nobody does this. And what has the bridegroom done? Nothing. Jesus has given him honor at no expense. Now you see why it is a sign of the glory of Jesus. Because God is most glorified when he saves us from our shame and bestows on us the honor of Jesus. If you are in Christ, this is what John later says on the lips of Jesus, just as my Father loves me, so I love you. You have all the rights and privileges of God's kingdom, all the rights and honors of being a son in God's household, which means all that's true about Jesus is true about you. If you're not a Christian, this is what it's at the heart of Christianity. Jesus takes our shame on the cross and dies. And then he gives us all of his honor. And we do nothing. And that's the heart of this table, isn't it? This is the table where we come and leave our shame at the cross and celebrate. Celebrate that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, there's something better for us than embarrassment in God's household. Now there's delight and joy. This is a celebration. This isn't a table of mourning. This is a table of celebration. But it's also a table where we anticipate the great day when Jesus comes back and we celebrate together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Oh, for that day to come. But we won't get there on our own strengths and our own merits. But only as we cling to the cross of Jesus Christ where he is glorified. Let's pray. God, as we, as we, your people, bring much shame to the table, may we leave it at the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, we're so thankful, our Savior, that you would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Gain a righteousness that we could be clothed in, a status in your Father's house, a spirit um, of sonship cast into our hearts. So, God, make us rejoice. Make us rejoice that we belong to such a lavish kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.